Dimitri was a young man in Rome in the first century who, well, he, he was like pretty much everyone in Rome, which meant that um, he grew up going to the temples. There are all sorts of different temples, all sorts of different gods, and, and going to the temple to worship was just a regular part of life. It's part of what it meant to be part of the Roman community. It's everyone in his family did it. Everyone of his friends did it. And, you know, he, there are some parts about going to the Roman temples that he really kind of enjoyed. Like, there's times where it'd be really solemn. There are times it'd feel really regal and powerful. Other times it'd be really joyous and there'd be dancing. Other times, honestly, it was pretty sensuous and even sexual. But it was normal for him. He, he didn't really think about what he believed or you know, what it would make of all these different Roman gods. It was just what everybody did. And so that's what Dimitri did. It was just life, normal life. And then he met Sebastian. Uh, he, he and Sebastian worked together, uh, both as, as bricklayers. And, um, well, there was something different about Sebastian. He, he just had a greater sense of peace in his life and purpose. And when, when Dimitri asked him about it, uh, Sebastian mentioned that he was a follower of what they called the way. He was a follower of the way. And, and, and he was just interested. See, apparently Sebastian had heard this message about that from a God that was really different than all the Greco-Roman gods. It was, it was about the Jewish God, the, the, the God of all gods, they said. The, the God above all gods, the one true God, the God that created everything. And, and apparently this God had like a, like a human representative, a son, like that was also God named Jesus who died on the cross and rose again from the dead and whose spirit fills all those who respond to him, who believe in him. And, well, that, that was a really strange thought for Demetrius, but he went to one and then several of the, the gatherings of the people of the way. And, well, he saw the difference. He saw people that were living differently, people with a greater sense of peace and purpose and love and hope and peace and Faithfulness and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And he wanted what they had. And so he found out more about Jesus. And, and he too became convinced. The, the Jesus, it wasn't just like a story like he grew up with the stories of the Greco-Roman gods. And it's, I mean, you do all the stuff, but everybody kind of knows it's a fairy tale. The, this Jesus was an actual historical person. And as he came to respond to this Jesus, something inside him started to change. He felt different. He was different. So for Dimitri, Demetrius, as, 
As he became a follower of Jesus and he too joined the people of the way, it wasn't just his heart that changed. He realized he needed to change some things in his life too. And he realized in that moment, he could never go back to the Roman temples. He could never go back to worshiping false gods. What he discovered are idols. They're just like, they're they're make-believe gods that you kind of put your hope in, but they don't really do anything for you because they're not real. He knew he could have nothing to do with the temples, nothing at all. He had to make a clean, total break from all that old stuff. But there was something he would miss about the temples. The barbecue. Because you see, in the temples, they, they, the rich people would come and they bring, they buy meat, they buy like lots of meat. And they bring it to the temples and a third of it would get sacrificed to the gods. And you, I mean, the smell, oh, it was, he, he loved, the, maybe you can relate, he loved the smell of barbecue. A third of it would go to the gods. A third of it would go back to the family that was making the sacrifice to the gods. So they'd have this big feast. And a third of it would go to the priests who never could eat all of it. So they put all the excess out in the cafeteria, in the marketplace. And then it was cheap barbecue. And if you're a bricklayer and you don't get to eat barbecue very often, oh, it was good. It was by far the best bar. It was, well, not only was it the best barbecue in town, it was the only barbecue he could, he, could, he could afford. But he knew, he knew, he knew. If he was going to follow Jesus, he, made, he needed to make a clean break from all that old stuff. He couldn't go back to the temples. He couldn't even go back for the meat. He couldn't do it. I mean, so he made a vow to the Lord. Jesus... I want to follow you. So I'm never going to eat that stuff again. Because every time I eat it, every time I even smell it, it takes me back to places that I don't want to go back to. Reminds me of the person I used to be and not the person I am. So Demetrius, he became a vegetarian for Jesus. It was hard, but he knew it was the right thing to do. He knew it was the right thing to do which is what made it so difficult. When he was walking home from work one day, had to take a different route because he had to pick something up from the market. He could smell that barbecue. It's coming from the temple. It's just, I mean, he didn't go inside the temple. He was just walking past the temple. He could smell that barbecue. And then he looked in the cafeteria of the, of the temple. He just, just took a look. Wouldn't you know it? They're sitting in the cafeteria munching on some barbecue chicken with Sebastian, the guy who led him to the Lord. And a bunch of other people from the same group that he'd been part of. Something inside just broke. How could they do that? How could they compromise their faith like that? So Demetrius, he walked into the cafeteria and he started waving his finger, got in the face of Sebastian and said, how could you compromise yourself like that? And Sebastian looked right back at him 
and said, why are you judging me like that? I haven't gone in the temple. I'm just eating. I'm just here for the food. I told you that story because I wanted to give a little bit of historical back backstory to the issue that we're going to look at today. And that we're in a series called I Believe in the Church Again, where we're looking at some of the harder aspects of church life and then opening up the scriptures to see, you know, kind of what it's, what it's supposed to be like. Because you know, the church, the local church, the thing that you and I, we are part of together is God's plan A for impacting the world. There's so much potential in the local church and there are so many things about being a part of a local church that can be difficult. And so the issue I want to look at today, our word of the day is judgment. And how it's, it is easy for us as Christians to judge one another. In fact, um, there, I, I was reading a, a survey recently by, um, uh, this is in a book by David Kinnaman, Unchristian, What the New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. So it came out a few years ago, but it came up with this statistic. And see if you can relate to this one. That 87% of the unchurched, well, let's put that up on the screen. 87% of the unchurched would say that the word judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. 87%. Now, if you have... Now, no, maybe you agree with that, or maybe you don't agree with that, but if, if, you, if you have any friends, family members that don't know Christ, or that you know, were walking with the Lord for a while, and then they left the church... Take that statistic and put it next to the experiences you've had with them. We, rightly or wrongly, as Christ followers, are seen by our culture as people who are judgmental. So I want to take a closer look at that. And take a closer look at that through, actually, a passage in the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14. That, um, that is, is written by the Apostle Paul. So he, he's in Corinth at this point. He's writing to Rome. He hopes to visit Rome one day. Doesn't know whether or not he can. And so he, gives, he writes this incredible book. I mean, the book of Romans is, is, is just like the... I mean, this, it's a theological sort of center almost of the New Testament. So amazing. So the Apostle Paul is kind of writing the summary out of, of, the, of the Christian faith and what it means to be someone who is saved by grace through faith. And as part of the book, it includes a chapter that for many of us, if we were to read it, you just go, oh, that's weird. What's that about? That, so, so at first glance, I'm just warning you as we look at it, we're going we're gonna to take a look at um, the first 13 verses, so we'll do a bit of a longer reading today. Um, at first you might think, well, that, that doesn't have anything to do with us today because you and I, we probably don't fight about barbecue very much. But, but... There are all sorts of ways that Christians today do differ. And this passage points us to a solution to that problem that goes ultimately a whole lot deeper than what our secular culture around us would say is the actual answer. Because on some level, we're gonna, you're going to hear this, and, and you, you're probably already familiar with this idea that, that you know, Christians are judgmental, so therefore we, we should have kind of... A, the answer to that is to just not be judgmental at all. Like anything goes, 
everything and all things are just going to be accepted. Is that the answer? Like so many things, the scriptures point us to something that goes so much deeper. There's a deep, deep, deep. This, well, that's why it's the word of God. I mean, there's a deep, deep wisdom that goes beyond the easy answers that we see in the world around us. So you ready to dive in with me? Okay, you're not going to get thrown off by the whole barbecue thing? Okay, all right. Romans 14, we're going to read the first 13 verses and then just do a deep dive into this idea of, of judgment. Okay. 14.1, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. We'll come back to that. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. Sebastian. But another whose faith is weaker, maybe younger, eats only vegetables. Demetrius. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Isn't that good news? See, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before the Lord's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account to God. Therefore, verse 13, first part of verse 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And on some level, even just that that last statement, let us stop passing judgment on one another. I mean, you think of all the ways, and if you've been part of churches for any amount of time, like the churches, we we can burn a lot of energy on infighting, right? You you, you want to see a lot of heat generated? I mean, there, there are, there's, Maybe you've been to congregational meetings like that or board meetings like that. But every now and again, there's issues that come up that we really, we really get our, our girdles in a knot about. Uh, and so we can, we can burn a lot of energy. So is the answer like what our secular culture around us would tell us? So the answer maybe is just, we just don't care about anything. This is a judgment-free zone. I'm okay. You're okay. You do you. I'll do me. We'll just let one another be. Is that the answer? Is that the full answer? I'm going to let you sit with that for a sec. Our culture would tell us that's the full answer. Ironically, have you ever noticed this? That the, the environments, especially the secular environments, that most claim to be judgment-free zones aren't? Like, 
you know, everything goes, it's all okay, it's all good, you do you, you and, but the, until you come up with, you say anything that is maybe a dissenting opinion, like, I have a problem with that. Oh, oh, oh you're going you're gonna to see how, how tolerant we really are now. We already know by looking at the secular world around us that this idea of being 100% judgment-free is actually not going to work very well. So what is? I'm going to leave a little bit of tension in the room with that. Although those of you who brought your actual Bibles, you're going to be real smart and you're going to read a couple of verses ahead because there's a whole, I mean, the Lord has so much through Paul to say, has so much to say about this. But let's just, let's just, let's just look at this idea of judgment. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, he, he writes this, okay? What business is it is mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? So here, here is an area where we're, we're pretty clear where we're not supposed to cast judgment. Here's, here's sort of idea number one, okay? Don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Why is the room so quiet? Don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Now, it is appropriate for Christians to stand up for common morality, like to speak up, to let it inform how you vote, let it inform how you advocate, because you know, following God's ways as individuals and as societies leads to human flourishing. But here's what we're not supposed to do, is to wag our fingers at someone that doesn't know Jesus and then, doesn't, and then acts like they don't know Jesus. The cousin of yours that's living with his girlfriend, who's not a believer, the greater problem in his life is that he doesn't know Christ, not the fact that he's sleeping with his girlfriend. Now, that doesn't mean that sleeping with his girlfriend is a good idea, but it does mean that until he knows Christ, he has no resources to change. Do you hear me? Why expect to act somebody as if they had Christ in their heart, as if they had the Holy Spirit strengthening and guiding their lives when they don't know Christ yet? Choose your battles so carefully. When somebody doesn't know Christ, it's, it's like coming, uh, meeting a friend who's having a heart attack and also happens to have a paper cut. Deal with the heart attack first, and then, and then we can talk about the paper cut. Don't expect someone that doesn't know Christ to act as if they do. So advocate for godly morality but let us be really careful about how we engage individually. Really, really careful. One of the biggest issues that the early church faced is that this, this faith that was predominantly Jewish, I mean, Jesus was Jewish, all the disciples were Jewish, this predominantly Jewish faith entered the Gentile world, like the people who were not ethnically Jewish, not culturally Jewish. And so they had to figure out early on, like, so what parts of the faith are universal, like things, practices that everybody is supposed to have, and what parts of this are kind of more culturally conditioned? And um, 
Well, in, see, in Acts chapter 15, they have this really vital cancel. We're going we're to do a, a series in the book of Acts this fall. I'm really, really excited for that. Just an amazing, amazing book. But there's this principle that we see in Acts chapter 15 that is just so revolutionary, where uh, after hearing all these arguments back and forth, James, who ends up being just so inspired in this moment, Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, he, he, he says this, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling to, them to abstain from food polluted by idols. So don't make, your, don't make your fellow believers really upset by that. From sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. In other words, we've got this, it, makes, it starts to make this distinction between there's some elements of living out the faith that are just cultural. And in those areas that are cultural, there's going to be tremendous flexibility. And there's a few elements of following Christ that are moral. And there's, I mean, there's some common moral principles that apply to all people. So now, so with that, that is the backdrop. Let's come back to Romans chapter 14. Take a look at verse 1. 14, 1. Except the one, Paul writes, whose faith is weak. So the weak, strong, that's, a, that's one, one category to remember. Without quarreling over, and I, I, I underlined it because this might be a new category for us to think about. Without quarreling over, what's, what's the phrase say? disputable matters. In other words, there are some things, some cultural aspects of living out the faith that Christians will differ on. Here's the way I like to put it, and for those of you who are joining us for the membership class right after church, you're getting a little bit of a head start because this is actually the big distinctive of the Covenant Church. It's not totally unique to the Covenant Church, but it's the big one that we want you to understand if you're thinking about taking the next step and kind of moving into the decision-making and leadership life of the church, which is what it means to be a member. Is that when we come across a situation, whether that's maybe a theological difference or just kind of a cultural difference, here's an important question for us to ask. Is this something that Jesus-loving Bible-trusting Christians honestly disagree. And let's put it up on the screen and we'll, and so we can see that again. Is this something that Jesus-loving, Bible-trusting Christians honestly disagree on? So people have studied the Scriptures, they're looking to follow Jesus, and they just honestly come to difference, differences of opinion. Now, some of the ones that have marked us as the Covenant Church are the fact that there are differences in, for example, how people view baptism. If you were raised Lutheran or Presbyterian or anything from the Reformed culture or any of the sacramental cultures, you would see baptism as this gift that is mediated through the church. Baptism means that a person belongs to God. This is my passages like Mark and Jesus' baptism. This is my son who I love Listen to him. Baptism is the moment that somebody is fully welcomed into the family of faith. And so from a Lutheran perspective, from an Episcopalian perspective, a Presbyterian perspective, a Reformed tradition perspective, any of those things, 
baptizing a baby is totally appropriate because baptism says this baby belongs to God. Now, those of you who are raised Baptist, you're like, no, 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 no. And Baptists also love Jesus. And Baptists also read the scriptures. And they're reading baptism through the book of Acts rather than maybe through the book of Colossians. And they say, no, 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 no. Baptism is a response to faith. It's what happens after somebody becomes a follower of Jesus. So there's no way. You maybe dedicate your baby, but you're not going to baptize your baby. And the big distinctive in the covenant church is we say we're just not going to divide over that stuff. Now, baptism is important. But we're not going to divide over that stuff because there there are Jesus-loving, Bible-trusting Christians who honestly, honestly, honestly disagree on this thing. So let's let's not divide the church over it. But it's also okay to have your own convictions. It's also okay to have your own convictions. Now, in the early church... I think it's so interesting that Paul, even as he's writing out this kind of theological treatise, he would take the time to talk about, like, these, I mean, talk about barbecue. He would talk about meat offered to idols. Because that was an area where the early church found themselves with significant differences of opinion. Some people would say, you know, you got to leave all that stuff behind. I mean, there were, everyone was in agreement that no Christian should worship in the Roman temple. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. So that, that was, everybody believed that and practiced that. But can you go back to the cafeteria to pick up chicken every now and again? And some Christians would say, no, we just don't want anything to do with that. You just, just can't have anything to do with that. And others would say, hey, we're not worshiping in the temples, and we know that everything that's going on in there is just, is just smoke and mirrors. It's all, it's, it's all gobbledygook anyway. So if, if, if I can get some discounted chicken from the, from the gift shop, I'm like, am I hurting anything? Christians honestly disagreed on that. Some Christians would, would say that worshiping on the Sabbath was super, super, super important. You probably have some Christian friends still today that think that worshiping on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, by the way, is super, super, super important. While other Christians would say, you know, you can worship on any day of the week that you want. You show up on a, go to a worship service on a Wednesday night, that's, that's good. Show up on a Sunday morning, that's good. And Christians have often worshiped on a Sunday morning because it's the day of the resurrection. That fits in really good with Easter. So you might as well just keep going. But it's not a big deal. Now, so the ancient issues were things like what day of the week do you worship on? And what do you do about meat offered to idols? In modern Christianity, we've got a variety of theological convictions. Are you Arminian or are you Calvinist? Some of you don't even know the difference. And they're like, okay, well, we... But there's significant theological differences. Other will be things like, you know, alcohol. Do you, can you drink alcohol? No, there's, there's common agreement that getting schnockered is a really bad idea because, write this down, drunk people do stupid things. I got verses that back that up, okay? Drunk people do stupid things, so don't be a drunk person. But, you know, whether or not you can, you can have a glass of wine every now and again... 
Christians honestly disagree on that. Use of tobacco. Use of cards. Can you go dancing? How fashionable can you be? What's the best Bible translation? How active in sports should you be? What about music? Are there styles of music you shouldn't listen to? Can you listen to any secular music at all? How about expression in worship? You you see, there's there's enormous amounts of diversity, isn't there? There's enormous amounts of diversity. Even when there can be maybe some, some common values. Let me illustrate one. I don't know if this is a good illustration, but just bear with me. So all Christians are called to modesty. But modesty looks different culture to culture. Let me illustrate. This might scar some of you, but if, if you and I went to a beach and I went swimming, I would have about the most boring set of dad swim trunks on. Super boring. No one's going to care. No one's going to take a picture. No one's going to raise an eyebrow. This is just like cargo shorts, you know, like this swim trunks. Da- middle-aged dad swim trunks. Are, the ones I wear are certainly modest at the beach. And yet, if I was to come out this morning and preach in those same swim trunks, I promise you, you would find it distracting and you'd probably find it inappropriate and you would be right. The modesty in one cultural situation is not necessarily modesty in another cultural situation. There's the common thread of modest dress is good, but what exactly that looks like in various situation to situation and culture to culture. So what do we do? What do we do? Ah, all these differences of opinion. Do we just like throw out all the rules? No. No. Remember that Romans 14.1, this idea there's disputable matters. There's some things that we hold firmly to. Other things we hold loosely to. And so what do we do with those things that we hold loosely to? Now let's go back to verse 13. Let's read the whole verse. I'm so glad that the Bible says more than just what our culture tells us. Verse 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. That's where we stopped. Instead, there's something better than just not passing judgment on one another. Here's what we actually are called to do. You interested? Instead, make up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. In other words, we may not always see eye to eye on things, but I'm going to go out of my way to try to not hurt your faith through my actions. So that ends the culture of judgment. So it's not judgment, but what we do have instead of judgment is something much more powerful and honestly at times much more difficult. And that's mutual accountability. So it's not judgment, but it's mutual accountability. In other words, I care about how my walk affects you. We care for one another. We may not always see eye to eye, but I'm going to do everything I can in my reasonable power. Because, I mean, you can't please absolutely everyone all the time. Please don't try. But rather than just say, oh, who who cares? 
You can say, I care. I care about how my actions affect you. There's mutual accountability. Paul keeps on writing. We're going to jump up to verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Even really great temple barbecue. All food is clean. But it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better to not eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So it introduces this, this, this principle that I want to spend just a little bit of time with. It's, it, it's the idea, because remember it's in Romans 14, 1, and maybe we can jump back there just for a moment. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. This idea that there are times where when, that whoever is more mature in the faith is the one that should actually care the most. So here's the principle. The mature Christians, mature Christians care about how their lifestyle affects others. It's one of the marks of maturity for Christians. Not the only one, but it's one of them. Mature Christians care about how their lifestyle affects others. You, you, we all have the friend that's done the social media post. I don't care who this offends. What, every time I read one of those, if, they're, if it's coming from a fellow believer, what I know is that this is, this is, this is either someone who's not as mature as they think they are, or two, this is someone who's, who's going through an extraordinarily tough time in life because, because their conscience is getting turned off. Because mature Christians, mature Christians care about how their lifestyle affects others. So what we're trying to do together, what we're trying to do together is to be biblically faithful and culturally gracious. That we actually believe that God's word has something to say to each and every one of us and we are trying our best to just be, to be sincere followers of Christ. We're trying to love like Jesus. And we recognize that not everyone's going to be on the same page all the time. Sometimes people are going to see things differently. They're going to have a different set of personal standards. They're going to be strongly convicted, but it'll be a, maybe a different conviction than our own. Just because God has called you to something doesn't mean that he's called the person sitting next to you to the very same something. There are some things that we hold too firmly. There are some bedrock truths of the Christian faith. Jesus is our Savior. The Bible is our book. That we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us daily. That we look to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And there's some things that we might just find ourselves differing on. Style of music. Style address, long, long, long list. How you engage politically or not. 
You might, for reasons of faith, have some sort of dietary restrictions. And in those places where we honestly differ, we honestly differ, we look to have mutual accountability and mutual care. We look to be gracious with one another. We look to build up one another's faith or at very least, try to not hurt it. I'm so grateful that we have all these freedoms, not only freedoms as Americans, and thank God for that, but also the freedoms we have as, as believers. That God, that, that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not about your track record. It's not about what you've done. There's a, there's a tremendous, beautiful freedom as Christians. That God's love for you is not dependent on, on the list of rules that you followed. God's love for you is dependent on the cross that Jesus died on. And yet, with all that freedom, we don't use it to clobber one another. We use it to serve one another. And Lord, I will even forego some of my freedoms if it can help my brother or sister grow closer to you. Freedom is important. Defend it for one another. But don't use it to hurt one another. It's not that important. We have received the grace of God. He has been so good to us. And when we appreciate how good and gracious God has been to us, it starts to ooze out of us to the people around us. And I'm so grateful to be part of a church that is exhibiting that in so many ways. <laughs> you know, I, like I just think of even, even little things, little details. Like when we do communion together, you'll notice that we, have, uh, we serve grape juice. Even though, uh, biblically speaking, if we were really trying to emulate first century uh, communion, we would have wine. But the reason why we have grape juice is because, thank God, we're a church that has quite a number of recovering addicts. It's actually one of the secret strengths of the church. If you're a recovering addict, you are among friends here. But rather than uh, exercise a freedom in a way that may, force, for a few even, be triggering, we're going to forgo that freedom for the sake of love. Are there freedoms in your life that maybe God is calling you to forsake or things you've already forsaken for the sake of love? I could do that. It'd be okay for me to do that. God would still love me if I did that, but it might hurt my neighbor. And so, Lord, I'm willing to give that up. And I'm certainly willing to not flaunt that freedom in front of them. Invite us to stand, if, if you're able to stand as we close. The prayer that we've been inviting each other to pray together is, is the prayer, Lord, help us be a local church worth believing in. In a world that looks to tear one another down, in a world that's so often so polarized, is looking to find enemies and build alliances. What if this here together 
this tiny little expression of God's work in the world, this one little local church, what if we sought to be a place where we built one another up? Where we sought unity? Where we held tightly to the essentials of faith? And then we're gracious with one another in the areas that we honestly differ. That we do what we need to do to the best of our ability to not hurt one another with our freedoms.